And as we get ready to jump into the word today, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 12. So you can meet me there. Revelation chapter 12. And I want to take a couple of minutes, uh, I won't take too long, but just as we get into the Word today, just to update you on where we're at in terms of our reopening plans for the summer. And so the government has laid out uh, sort of a three-phase, step-by-step plan for churches and places of worship for how we can meet safely over the summer. And so step one, uh, if we wanted to partake of it, would be to be outdoors, and we should be able to do that in a couple of weeks. And then a few weeks after that, we can be inside again at 15%. In a few weeks of that, we can be inside again at 30%. And so just as we were digging into that and trying to think of how do we want to handle this, what's the best way that we want to do that, we have decided that we're just going outdoors for the summer. We're calling it Church on the Lawn, and we're just going to worship outside this summer. And rather than having to wait all summer to see what the measures are and then is the government going to let us go into the next phase and, and you know, to not have to just keep changing our plans or being, uh, being thrown off by that, we're just planning on worshiping God outside in his creation for the summer months. And so the reasons we like this idea, number one, is that outside we can be at 100% capacity as long as we can have good distancing between us. And we have a huge field out back, so we can distance 50 feet apart if we wanted to. And so we like the idea that we can all be in one gathering together. We have not done that for a long time. So we love that idea. And rather than doing that for a little bit and then jumping back to 15% in indoors and multiple services and stuff. We just thought, let's just enjoy the summer. Let's just enjoy being all together, being outside. Uh, Because we are outside and well-distanced, masks will not be mandatory outside. And as we are putting the details together, we'll send out an email this week with all the details on what we are doing. There will be a full kids program. The nursery is going to stay open inside for up to 10 people, and that will be there for our babies. And then Tykes and MB Kids will be outside. They're just going to be in different parts of the field, but they will have their program. We're going to just do simple this summer. We're going to strip it down. Worship will be a smaller team. Uh, Sermons will be smaller, uh, shorter. We're trying to be mindful as we get into August especially that it can be warm outside. And so we're going to do more sort of 30, 40 minute uh, services and the same with our kids and then if you want to connect for a few minutes with other people our priority this summer is just worshiping together again and getting back together again and being one church family again and we also like being outdoors any risk of COVID drops dramatically being outside and so for those of you who have not been back to church because you're concerned about gatherings what we like about this is that you can distance as far as you are comfortable with and so you can be at the bypass if you want and still be able to be a part of the worship with us and enjoying that with us. And uh, if masks have been your problem for the last year, that's not going to be a factor. So we want to see you back with us as well. And so we are really excited about this. We will send the details out to you. The main thing you'll have to learn, uh, the only thing you'll have to do as a member of the church is bring a lawn chair. That's the only thing on you. Uh, Everyone's just going to bring their own lawn chair. If you want to bring, of course, water or sunscreen or whatever, you can do that as well. But we think this should be happening two Sundays from now. We won't know for sure. uh, But that is is the rough outline that the government has given us at this point, so two Sundays from now. And what's nice about that is that's also Pastor Sarah's farewell Sunday. And so that's just a great excuse to get the whole gang together and take some time to bless and thank Sarah. And so stay tuned for details, stay tuned for the official launch of this, but uh, we are really excited about it. And we're excited just to have everybody together again and worshiping together again. So that will be our plan for the summer. All right, so we are going through our series 
series, Apocalypse Now. We'll do this for a couple more weeks, and then as we move into our new summer mode, as we shift gears for summer worship, we'll stick a pin in it. We'll pick it up again in the fall. And as we are going through this, uh, just as a reminder, we're starting to get into the parts of Revelation where there's a lot that's left up to interpretation. And so we just have grace for that. When the Bible really wants us to know clearly what some symbolism or imagery means, uh, John just tells us exactly what it is. And if John doesn't tell us, then we don't need to know. And so we can speculate. That's kind of fun to wrestle with it and figure out what we think it means, but we don't need to die on that hill any, anywhere. And so as we are in Revelation chapter 12, kind of a tricky chapter, and uh, we're talking about the devil today. And when it comes to Satan, the devil, the enemy, uh, all the different names that we will give to him in scripture or otherwise, it's a bit of a tightrope walk because in our lives, and even as I'm preaching, I said to the prayer group this week as we've been meeting for prayer, I said it's kind of awkward preaching on Satan because you don't really want him to be the center of attention, right? You don't want him to get all of the focus. That's what he wants. And that's the same with our lives. We don't want him to ever be center stage in our lives. We don't want him ever to have the main attention. We want all of that to go to Jesus. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme where we're not aware of him at all or acknowledging him at all. And sometimes as Christians, we can do that as well. And so it's really easy to give him too much attention it's really easy to not give him any attention, but scripture tells us we need to be aware of him. We need to be alert. Or that's the type of language that the New Testament uses when it comes to Satan. Not let him take over, not be overly fearful of him, but to be aware and to be alert because he is there, he is real, he has some influence, and so we just want to try to find that kind of sweet spot where we don't give him too much attention, but we're also not ignoring the reality of him as well. So a lot of times I will ask people the question, where is God at work in your life right now? And it's a good question to ask regularly of ourselves. Where is God at work in your life right now? Because I believe he is always at work. We sing that in one of our worship songs. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even if I can't understand it, you are working. You are doing something. Even in the wilderness, even in the silence, God is doing something. And sometimes we kind of have to think about that. We have to look for that. Where is God at work right now? What is he doing in your heart right now? What is he doing in your character right now? Where is he stretching you right now? Where is he using you right now? Where is God at work in your life right now? I think another question for us to be aware of at the same time is where is the enemy at work right now? Because if we don't give that any thought, I think it's just way too likely that he's going to be able to sneak in there. And so where might the enemy be working in our lives right now? Where is he discouraging? Where is he tearing down? Where is he Dividing? Where is he stirring up anger? Where is he turning us against each other? If we don't ever ask that question, then we might fall into the trap of thinking that every angry thing or divisive thing or every word that I speak is just mine and it's good and it's righteous. And that isn't the case. And so we want to be aware of both sides. There, there are two sides of that coin of where is God at work in our lives? Most importantly, where is the enemy at work so that we are aware of it? We are paying attention to it and we are pushing back against it. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in Revelation chapter 12. And I won't go in depth into every single verse today, but we will read the whole chapter. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. 
She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach." Then from, the mouth, from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So it's getting very like Lords of the Ringsy now, right? Like we're starting to get into some very sort of fantastical imagery. And there is imagery here that is involved uh, in, in telling the story, not just of uh, what is happening, but some of this stuff has happened in the past. Some of it maybe is happening in the future. And just a reminder when it comes to Revelation, we have to be aware that there, there seems to be some time hopping going around. This is not meant to be a step-by-step -step story of here's the exact order of things that are going to happen. Some of this chapter obviously seems to be talking about Jesus being born and Jesus ascending to heaven, and that's all happened in the past. And so for those who would hold that Revelation is a futuristic book entirely, I think it's hard to hold on to that all the time. And so we just need to be aware of that piece, that some of this stuff we'll dig into a little bit of when are these events happening and, and what does that mean for us. But our heart in all of this is to say, what is the Spirit saying to the church today? through God's word. And we don't have to be masters of revelation to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. And so we're not going to be as concerned about perfectly figuring out every detail as much as taking away how is this pointing us to Jesus? How is this leading us in his ways? How is this drawing us closer to God? All of that kind of thing. So jumping in to verse 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain 
pain as she was about to give birth. So uh, we're not told what exactly this is. We're told exactly who the dragon is. There's no confusion about the dragon. Uh, John makes very clear that dragon is that old serpent. It is the devil. It is Satan. But we're not told specifically who this woman is. And so all that's left is some speculation. The Catholic Church would love to say it's obviously Mary. It obviously speaks to Mary. Mary is the one who is pregnant. She was the one who gave birth to the Messiah. And that could be true. Uh, I think the fact that uh, the, the, the passage talks about these are signs, these are symbols, uh, suggests that it's probably not meant to be literally Mary. It has been suggested that this woman represents Eve or represents women in general, that Satan from the beginning tempted Eve right away. He's been after women all throughout human history. Women have been oppressed often throughout human history. And so she could just be symbolic of women. Uh, and as that uh, promise that was given to Eve at the beginning, that out of your offspring, the head of the serpent would be crushed, and that that's why Satan hates women so much, because he knew from the beginning that through woman, the Messiah was going to come. That is certainly possible as well. Personally, as I look at the imagery of it, uh, the other main interpretation of who this woman is is that she represents Israel or she represents the church and Israel together. And if I had to lean one way without dying on the hill, I would suggest that one. And I think the, when you start talking about 12 stars, whenever we're talking about 12, that's often symbolic of government. The 12 tribes of Israel could represent the 12 apostles. Satan has always hated Israel. There has been no nation on earth that has gone through the suffering and the persecution that Israel has from the very beginning. Satan has been trying to wipe them off the face of the earth because he knew through that line, through the promise given to Abraham that the Messiah was going to come. And so from the beginning, he's been trying to wipe them out. They are the firstborn children of God. They are the apple of his eye. They are the beloved family of God, and Satan hates them intently. And so it makes sense to me that this woman represents Israel. Israel, the one that God entrusted with the scriptures, the one that God entrusted with the Messiah. Israel was going to metaphorically give birth to Jesus, who was going to be the savior of the world. Satan has hated Israel for that very reason. And so uh, take that with a grain of salt. My thoughts on it, if you disagree with me, that is okay. Less confusing is the second sign, verse 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And so no confusion as to this symbolism. A little bit later in this chapter, we're going to be told that that is that ancient serpent called ancient because the serpent shows up at the very beginning Genesis chapter 3 when mankind is there Satan is there to tempt them to question to lead them away from God Satan has been doing that from the beginning from the beginning he has been lying from the beginning he has been leading the world astray from the beginning he has been sowing doubt and sowing confusion our God is not the God of confusion but Satan is really good at making things confusing making things foggy, stripping us of our, of our faith, of our certainty, of our clarity on things. From the very beginning, he's been lying. From the very beginning, he's been dividing. Right away, because of his actions, Adam and Eve turn against each other. The first division amongst humanity grows from that very, very first moment that the serpent encounters humanity. And I love the King James version of Genesis chapter 3, which says, the serpent was subtle. Most versions, modern versions, say crafty or cunning. But I love that word subtle because it's just a great picture that Satan doesn't usually come in, horns blasting, saying, I'm Satan, here I am. 
He comes in subtly. He is clever. He is crafty. And he has a way of sowing thoughts into our head. He has a way of poking at our emotions and stirring us up in such a subtle way that we don't even realize that he's doing it. We believe that that thought is my thought. It's a good thought. Maybe even it's a God thought. We believe that every emotion that we feel is right and it is pure and it is righteous and it's definitely not. And so this is where we need to be aware. We need to be alert that not every thought in our head is a good godly thought. Not every feeling that we're feeling is a pure and holy feeling. But sometimes when we're, we're in the grip of some of this stuff, we are so convinced that we are right. We are so convinced that others are wrong. And again, that question is, where might the enemy be at work in my life right now? And the answer is, well, what's the fruit of what's coming out? What's the fruit of the words coming out of your mouth? What's the fruit of the actions you are taking? If it is causing anger, if it is causing division, if it's causing hatred, if it's causing doubt, if it's causing causing confusion. That's just a moment to pause and go, okay, so is this God? Is this me? Is this the enemy? Because I don't want to be a tool in the enemy's hands as much as I am able to do that. When the serpent comes at the very beginning to tempt, uh, he doesn't even actually work that hard. He just asks a question. Did God really say? He didn't even come in and say God didn't say. He just asked the question. Did God really say that you shouldn't go and, and, and eat of this tree. Did God really say that? That's all it took. And then Eve gets foggy, and Adam is there, and Adam gets confused, and they, they fall into the trap of this one who leads the whole world astray. And so as we get this picture of this dragon, uh, we're going to next week get into beasts. Next week we're into antichrists and, and, and really interesting stuff. Um, but we'll talk a bit more about the seven and the heads and the crowns and everything. But um, seven, as we've talked about in Revelation, means the complete number typically. It's a symbolic number that just means completion. And so the seven heads, and as we get into the beasts, and they have similar type things with crowns on their heads, probably just is speaking to authority, that this, this beast has a lot of of influence in this world. It has a lot of influence. The nations follow after the beast. They follow after the dragon. Uh, there is a lot of earthly authority here that, uh, that this dragon holds onto. And as for the verse that talks about the third of the stars, that the, the dragon takes its tail and takes a third of the stars and throws them to the earth, traditionally that verse has been understood to mean that when Satan rebelled against God, it says that the, the time before there was humanity, before before the Garden of Eden temptation happens is that traditionally we've understood that Satan was an angel created by God. He was a created being and there was something in Satan that said, I want to elevate myself even higher. I want to go higher than the position I've been given. I will elevate myself above the heavens. I will elevate myself to the level of the Most High God and that was where Satan lost his spot and, and just that pride, that selfishness, that self-elevation so twisted him that he decided I could even be like God, and of course that's not true. And so when uh, we look at that verse of the third of the stars, traditionally uh, the church has understood that to mean that when Satan rebelled against the throne of God, he got a third of the angels of heaven to go in with him. And a third of those angels lost their place in heaven with him. And so that is, if you have ever heard that number, this is the verse that we have understood that from. And so Satan rebels. He gets some of the angels of heaven to rebel with him. They don't, they're not able to do it. He deceives them, but they're not able to hold on 
to their spot in heaven, as we see in this passage. And here's the good news about that, if that is true, is that although Satan does have influence, although his angels, which we would now say are demons, uh, have influence, that there is power there, uh, there, is, there is things that they can do, on Satan's best day, he's still outnumbered by heaven two to one. That's good news. On Satan's best day, he's still outnumbered two to one. The hosts of heaven outnumber the hosts of hell two to one. And so that's encouraging right there to start, that it's already, that's not even counting the fact that God is God and Satan is not. Just in sheer numbers, it's already lopsided in our favor. It's already lopsided on our side, that the hosts of heaven that fight for us, that those who are on our side and march with us, not only do they also have more power because they're on God's side, but even just in terms of sheer numbers, they outnumber the enemy by double. Satan's already in a losing position from the beginning in all of this. So moving on, whoa, moving on to verse four. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That's from Psalm 2. It's a messianic promise. So there's no doubt about who this baby is. We're talking about Jesus. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And so there, again, we're talking about time hopping a little bit, right? Because when John writes this letter, Jesus has already been born. He has already ascended. And so there's a bit of the Christmas picture here that the baby is coming through Israel, through Mary, through Eve, however you want to interpret the woman of this passage. The baby, the Messiah is coming. Satan is there ready to devour. Satan has been an abortionist from the beginning. He wants to crush life before it can begin. And so there is this moment there and we know in the life of Jesus that as Jesus is born that Satan stirs up Herod to try and wipe out all the babies, right? He's trying to kill this life before it can start. We saw a similar story happen to Moses, that as Moses is born, there's also this move to kill all these babies because the enemy wants to destroy God's work, destroy life before it can happen. And so this is a bit of a Christmas verse in a roundabout way. Satan is there ready to destroy. God will not let that happen. And we see that throughout the passage that as this woman is uh, in various ways miraculously protected by God, she's given wings to fly away. Uh, the earth opens to save her from the river coming towards her, that God will protect his people always. There will be a provision, whatever the enemy is trying to do. And so there's a bit of the birth of Jesus in this passage. There seems to be a bit of the ascension of Jesus as well. And so the whole life, death, ministry, cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is all in these like two verses. Right? There's a baby who was born, and then he was snatched up. It's like, well, John, you skipped a lot of things in between the birth of Jesus and the ascension. But that really is the whole gospel story, is, is just wrapped up in those verses that Jesus came, the Messiah arrived on the earth, he lived a life here on the earth where everything he did was push the kingdom of darkness back, and even when Satan thought he was winning by getting Jesus to the cross, Satan didn't realize that that was his great undoing. And as Jesus dies on the cross. He deals with our sin. As he rises from the dead, he deals with our death. And then he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God as Lord of all creation. 
So in those couple of verses, Satan loses everything. Satan is stripped of everything by this baby who was born to rule over the nations. And so as Jesus comes, as all of this happens, Satan's greatest weapons against humanity, what he had against us was sin and what he had was death. Because at the very beginning from the garden, his goal is to lead people into sin because in sin, we cut ourselves off from the living God. We say, I'm going my own way. I don't need you. And as we do that, we are separated. We are cut off from God. We have removed ourselves from the lifeline that is God. And so the only thing left is death at that point. When you're not connected to the source of life anymore, death is all that is left for you. So Satan's greatest tools were sin. And as he got us to sin, he led us into death. Those were the things that he had had to wage war against humanity, but in the life and in the death and in the resurrection and in the ascension of Jesus, all of that gets overturned. Satan loses yet again. And so as this is happening, verse 7 through 9, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven." The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So we're introduced to a new character here. We get to meet Michael, Michael the archangel. We have met Michael a couple of times already in scripture. He shows up in Daniel and he shows up briefly in the book of Jude. And in Jude, Michael is called an archangel, which is to suggest a particularly powerful angel. He seems to be something like a general in charge of the heavenly army. And we see that in Daniel as well. And so Michael is there to fight against the dragon in this story. And again, it's already lopsided two to one. But separate from that, um, here's what's encouraging about this passage is that we, we know, we understand that Satan has power. We understand that he is the, the most evil being in all creation. And we understand that with that evil and with that power, he has led the whole world astray. And he has led us into sin and he has led us into death. But here, this is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. With all of his power, with all of his influence, with all of his angels on his side, that he has has you know, deceived and brought along with them with all of the havoc that he has wreaked on this earth, here's what heaven has to say about Satan. But he was not strong enough. However strong he may be, he isn't strong enough to stand up to the power of God and the forces of heaven. He's not strong enough. It's not a fair fight. And what I love about this passage is that it's not even like Jesus had to go fight the dragon. Jesus sent a subordinate to go do the fighting. One of Jesus' subordinates was more powerful than the most powerful evil being who has ever been. Jesus didn't have to get up out of his chair. He just, Michael, can you deal with him? Please get him out. That's all it took. Satan was not strong enough. So wherever Satan may be at work in our lives, and we do want to be aware of it, always remember he is vastly outnumbered and he is not strong enough to stand up to God. He's not strong enough. That is not something that he has. He would like us to think otherwise, but whatever he's up to, he is not strong enough. So Michael and his angels are able to drive Satan 
and his angels out of heaven. The big question that there is no clear answer for is when is this happening? What are they talking about in this passage? Is this the original rebellion way back when Satan said, I'm going to exalt myself above everybody else and I'm going to become like the Most High God? Is it happening then? Is it happening in the future? Is there some futuristic battle that is yet to come where Satan will lose his place and get cast down? Is there some middle ground there uh, in, in the middle time? And so here's what I think, and again, with a grain of salt, take it, it's just my opinion, is that I think this is happening as Jesus is rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. In the Old Testament, a couple of times in the book of Job and in one of the minor prophets, we see Satan in heaven. We see the throne room and we see Satan is there. Satan comes before the throne when Job in Job's story and starts accusing Job uh, in front of God. He's not that special. He's not that great. He only loves you because you give him good stuff. Take the stuff away and he'll curse you to your face. Take his health away and he'll curse you to your face. Satan is there before God and he's accusing. He is trying to uh, tear Job down. We see it one other spot in the Old Testament as well. But in the New Testament, we don't see that there. And actually, when Jesus walks to the earth, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so I think, and again, I, I don't feel super strongly about it, but I think that it is possible that between the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, that Satan then loses all place in heaven. He's not in the throne room anymore. Because in Revelation, by the time we get here, we've already been in the throne room. Back in Revelation 4 and 5, Satan isn't anywhere. In the New Testament, we don't see Satan in the throne room. We don't see him doing that. And so if you had to put a gun to my head and ask me to make a choice, that's what I would say. Um, if you feel like that is referring to the original rebellion, it certainly could. If you think there's an end times thing, it certainly could be that as well. But that's what makes sense to me in light of the context of the chapter, that the Messiah has come, the Messiah has ascended to heaven. As that has happened, Satan has lost his place. Scripture says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. As Jesus dies and rises from the dead, Satan loses his place. And so as this happens, uh, a voice comes from heaven, and we see these things happen uh, throughout the book of Revelation where there'll be a song that comes from heaven or a voice that comes from heaven, and it kind of serves like a Greek chorus a little bit. They're explaining uh, what has just happened. And so Revelation 12, there's been this fantastical imagery of a, a woman and a dragon and a war and all these things, and then this voice from heaven comes, and it's actually explaining what has just happened. So verse 10 through 12. Then I heard a lot loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. That's another reason why I think maybe that's where Satan lost his place at the cross, because salvation has come. The kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. No one's accusing me before the throne of God anymore, right? Because I am set free from that because of what Jesus has done. Who can bring any accusation against those whom God has chosen. It cannot happen. So they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. 
And so we get one of Satan's names in this passage, the accuser. He's sometimes called the accuser of the brethren. And that there is that voice in our heads that still uh, we need to be aware of, even as followers of Jesus. There is just sometimes that voice that is constantly telling us that you're not good enough, that God doesn't love you, that you have to earn his love, that, that it's not about uh, fully what Jesus did. You actually have to work harder. You have to do better. You have to earn it. You have to, you have to go. And there's just that little voice, and I think that is just the voice of the enemy. I think that is what he does to us. Uh, and whether he can accuse us before the throne of God or not anymore is up for debate. But certainly there is that voice that constantly pulls us into ourself. It pulls us away from the work of Jesus. It pulls us away from the peace that we have in God. And it gets us just full of condemnation and full of the guilt and, and even sins we've left and we, we've repented of and we've acknowledged years ago. Sometimes the guilt of those things can still hold on and come crashing back. So that's one of the things that the enemy does. He is an accuser. And as as he does that, he often uses us in that way as well. We become accusers of others. We become the ones who want to point out what's wrong, every little thing, and everybody else. And Jesus makes really clear with a parable about our eyeballs, hey, don't get all upset about the speck of sawdust you're seeing in your brother's eyes. You worry about the plank in your own. That's your main job. Your main job is to worry about yourself. Now, there is a good way when we see something in someone else's life that needs to come up, there is a way to do it that is not of the enemy. There is a loving way. Uh, Galatians says that if we see someone in sin, we should restore them gently. There is a gentle and a kind way to bring up a problem, and we do need to do that. But we need to be aware, when is the voice of accusation coming out of our mouths? Because that might just be the voice of the enemy coming out of our mouths. And we need to be very, very aware of any time we are elevating ourselves over others. Now, most of us would say, no, I don't do that. And my answer is, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. We do that all the time. We elevate ourselves above others, above others all the time. And this past year of our lives has been a perfect example. I don't know anybody, including myself, who has not done some of this in the last year. And it's as simple as, as the attitude that says, I can't believe they're doing this. Right? Anytime, and you might not use these words, but anytime the attitude is, I am smart and they are not, or I am right and they are wrong, or I have faith and they are fearful, or I am strong and they are weak, anytime we're rolling our eyes at somebody else, every time we are passing judgment on how someone else is acting, we are elevating ourselves above them. And elevating self is exactly what Satan has been doing since the beginning. That's who he is. From the beginning, he said, I will elevate myself. And the easiest way for him to do that amongst us is just to, to plant those thoughts, to plant those feelings, to get us looking at other people, rolling our eyes, because we just can't believe how silly they're being, how dumb they're being, how selfish they're being, how scared they're being. And we elevate ourselves because we've got it all figured out. And those idiots don't know what they're doing. Sounds a lot like Satan when we are acting that way. And again, I don't know anybody who's, who's spared of that entirely. And so on the flip side of that, where Satan said, I'm going to elevate myself, I'm going to become like God, I am going to grow, and I'm going I'm to make myself great, Jesus comes and lives a life that is the exact opposite. Jesus says, I'm leaving all the glory. I'm emptying myself of all of that stuff. I am not going to consider equality with God something to be grasped. I will make myself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant, Jesus comes in the exact opposite attitude and leads us in the way of humility and leads us in the way of washing feet, 
leads us in the way of putting others first, leads us in the way of putting God and others ahead of ourselves, the exact opposite. So let us be aware of when that that self-elevation starts to creep in. Uh, I am noticing it all the time in myself and in others. It's just there. It's just we, we are constantly rolling our eyes and putting other people down and elevating ourselves as we do it. And we want to do the exact opposite because Jesus did the exact opposite. How can I lower myself? How can I humble myself? How can I love you and put you first? So as this is all happening, there's an interesting thing that happens. Michael and his angels have fought against Satan and cast him down. But as this voice from heaven comes, the voice says, hey, the people on earth have overcome. Not Michael overcame, not even Jesus overcame, although both of those things are 100% true, that the people on earth are overcoming the enemy at the same time and says that they've overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so by the blood of the lamb simply means that we overcome the enemy by acknowledging that Jesus has overcome the enemy, that by his blood that was shed on the cross, Jesus has done it all. When Jesus rose from the dead at the end of Matthew's gospel and ends up meeting with his disciples. I've lost this mic. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we overcome by acknowledging that this is true, that Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If Jesus has all authority, that means Satan doesn't have authority. And so we overcome when we lean into the authority that Jesus has and which he has delegated some of that to us as his church, that we would go out in his name and we would drive out demons and we would preach the gospel and we would pray for the sick, that we would actually go in his authority. Because if all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus, that means Satan doesn't have any left. He has power, he has influence, but we need to be careful even about that word authority that we use. And so we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb because of what Jesus has done and also by the word of our testimony that we are proclaimers over what Jesus has done. We are sharers of the good news. And in the context of the passage, when they're talking about overcoming Satan by the word of their testimony, I think what it probably means is the Christians who have held on to their testimony, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of martyrdom, they have not given up their testimony. They have patiently endured and they have remained faithful. And that is how the dragon is overcome. We overcome him as we trust in the blood of the Lamb and we overcome him as we continue to hold fast to that testimony that the blood of the lamb is what saves us. And so there's warfare going on in this passage, not just in terms of what's happening in heaven. There is warfare going on in this passage in terms of our response to the enemy. And Paul would talk about this in Ephesians, that spiritual warfare is something that we are all called to. And it involves prayer, it involves worship, it involves lots of things. But here's a really simple picture of spiritual warfare Whatever the enemy is trying to do, we choose the godly opposite thing. Whatever the enemy is trying to do, we choose the godly opposite thing. That is spiritual warfare. And it involves prayer with that, of course. But if Satan is trying to divide, we choose to unite. If Satan is trying to curse, we choose to bless. If Satan is trying to hate, we choose to love. We choose the godly opposite. Where there is conflict, we seek to be peacemakers. Where there is struggle, we seek to be encouragers and supporters. Where people are being torn down, we seek to build up. Where people are 
feeling weary. We seek to refresh. Whatever the enemy is up to, we do the godly opposite. That is our warfare. As we do that, we push the kingdom of darkness back. And so as Satan, the devil, the dragon has been hurled to the earth, it says that as he's come down, it says that he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And wherever the timeline is, wherever we place that story, uh, Satan's time is short in the sense of he has an end date. That there, there is no other conclusion for how the story is going to end for Satan. Satan's end has already been determined. Uh, he knows that. He knows that he's on a clock. And in that sense, I think one of the maybe most demonic, most satanic things uh, that we see happening in the world right now are things like suicide bombers, where someone says, I'm actually going to go, I'm going to look really innocent, but I'll go onto a bus and I'll kill myself and take a bunch of innocent people with me. It's one of the most awful things you can imagine. And that's really who Satan is. He's a suicide bomber. He knows he's going out. It's just a question of how many can he take out with him. And so he is on this mission to corrupt, to destroy as much as he possibly can. And the last verse of our passage, verse 17, says, The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That Satan can't get at God anymore, and he has not been able to... To take out Israel anymore. And so he's just after anyone who follows after Jesus, anybody who is faithful to God, anybody who holds to their testimony. We are all offspring of either the church or Israel. If this woman represents Israel, we are all children of Abraham. We are all adopted into the family of God. And so in that sense, we are her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. The enemy is after us. He's after us. He can't attack the throne of God anymore, but he can attack the image bearers, and he can attack those who are called by his name, who are still here on the earth. That is not something to be afraid of, because if you didn't notice in this passage, Satan loses every single time. He does nothing but lose in this passage. He does nothing but lose in this passage. And so we are not afraid, but we are aware that there is a war going on. He is after us. He is seeking to destroy our marriages. He is seeking to cause trouble in our families. He's seeking to cause trouble in churches. He is seeking to steal and kill and destroy because that is who he is. We are aware of that. But we are not walking around in fear of that. We're told this by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Sounds a little scary, but his call is, hey, just be alert. Be aware. If there was a lion loose in your neighborhood, you'd probably look around a little bit when you're heading to your car, right? You'd be alert. You would be aware. And so be alert, be of sober mind, just be, be clear-minded. It doesn't say be afraid, it doesn't say don't leave your house, it says be alert and of sober mind. There is an enemy out there like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But I mean, we've just seen a huge red dragon, which is a terrifying looking figure, lose and lose and lose and lose and lose in this passage. So like even the dragon is not something that we are to walk around terrified of because we know who our God is. And if there is a lion out there prowling around looking for someone to devour, we know that probably the safest place is stay close to the other bigger lion in the neighborhood. Right? Stay close to the Lion of Judah. Stay close to the Lord. There is a bigger, braver lion on our side. And so the best way to avoid the enemy, the best way to do that is to stay close to the Lord. 
and to find peace and safety by staying close to him in his presence. Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready. We're going to move into communion here in just a second. So how do we thrive in this Revelation chapter 12? How do we thrive as we reflect on the word? Uh, Not just surviving, but how are we thriving? First of all, we're going to thrive as we come to that understanding that we are aware but not afraid. And there is a sweet spot, and it's hard to find a sweet spot. It's very easy to give the enemy way too much attention. It's very easy to ignore him altogether. And we're trying to find that spot in the middle where we are alert, we are aware, but we are not afraid. And because if we go too far where he's the center of attention, then we're just going to be caught up in his turf the whole time, and we don't want to do that. If we go too far the other way where we're just not even aware or alert or paying attention at all, then it's going to be way too easy for him and his subtle craftiness to get a foothold in our life and we won't even realize it. And so we're trying to find that sweet spot of being alert and aware. We're going to thrive in spiritual warfare when we get better and better at doing the godly opposite of whatever the enemy is trying to do. Whatever the enemy is trying to do, we are choosing to do the godly opposite thing. And in that way, we are holy. We are different. In that way, we are light. In that way, we are salt. And when the enemy is trying to discourage, we will be encouragers. And when the enemy is trying to divide, we will be people who unite. When the enemy is trying to tear down, we will be people who build up. When the enemy is trying to hate, we will be people who love. When the enemy is trying to divide relationships and break them down with unforgiveness, we will be people who forgive. We will be people of reconciliation. We will do the godly opposite of whatever the enemy is up to. And every time we do that, we kick the kingdom of darkness backwards. We bring the light of God with us. Whatever we do, whatever we say, we're going to be very careful with our words. We don't want our words to be of the enemy. We want our words to be of God. We don't want our words to to wound. We don't want our words to crush or condemn. We want our words to be truthful, of course, but to speak life and to point to Jesus. We will thrive as we humble ourselves and remember, and this passage reminds us, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Satan does nothing but lose every step of the way. I'm going to get this woman. No, I fail at getting the woman. I'm going to kill this baby. No, I fail at killing the baby. I fail at stopping him. I'm going to do this. No, you're going to lose your place in heaven. Satan loses loss after loss after loss after loss. And he's not achieved his final loss yet. He will as we get to the end of Revelation. But we will remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will remember that greater are those who are for us than those who are against us. We will remember that Jesus didn't even have to deal with Satan himself. He sent a subordinate to do it. That's how much stronger light is than darkness. We will thrive as we remember that Jesus is Lord. And it's just, it's a great note to head into communion on because there are many different things that are happening as we come to the communion table. But one of the things that communion is, is it's a victory feast. It is coming to the table of victory. It is the acknowledgement of the victory of Jesus Christ. It is the acknowledgement that Jesus has won, that Satan has lost his place, that Satan's end is predetermined, and that whatever sin we had in our lives that was going to separate us from God, those sins have been washed away. And the death that seems so final, that was going to put us into darkness forever, is not that anymore. We have eternal life in Jesus, that this is a victory time that we celebrate. And so as we come to the communion table today, the word of the Lord says that a person should examine themselves before they partake. And so we do this every time. So the worship team is just going to play quietly like this just for a moment. And we're going to take a moment to pause, close our eyes, and just examine ourselves. It's time now to confess that sin. 
to get that off your chest. It's time right now to forgive that person and to pray for them. It might be time just to sit quietly in the presence of God, but before we partake, we want to examine ourselves and then we'll partake together. So let's pause here for a moment and wait upon the Lord as we do that. who declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, that Jesus Christ alone is greater, stronger, more powerful than anything on earth, that Jesus Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords, that whatever legitimate uh, power or influence or corruption that the enemy might bring, that he was not strong enough in light of the glory of the Most High God, that the Most High God's power overshadows anything that the enemy might seek to do in our lives or in this world, that in the life and in the death and in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that sin has been wiped clean and death has been defeated forever, that we are those who have clear consciences and can boldly come before the throne of grace because of the blood of the Lamb and because we hold fast to the word of our testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are the ones who are forgiven and washed clean, and we are the ones who will spend eternity with the one who shed his blood for us. This is a victory table this morning that we eat and drink at. We acknowledge the victory of Jesus over the dragon and anything the dragon wants to do. Lord, may we be people in your hands who push the darkness back every day of our lives, Lord. We will not be passive. We will not be unaware, Lord. We will not be fearful, but we will be alert and we will be tools in your hand by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be ones as we do the godly opposite thing of whatever the enemy wants to do, Lord, that we would see the darkness get kicked back. We would see the enemy in retreat as we submit ourselves to God and resist the enemy that he would flee from us, not because we are great, but because you within us are great. Christ in us is great. And it's all because of what you have done, Jesus. In your life, in your death, in your resurrection and ascension, you sit at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we celebrate that at the communion table today. Would you take whatever you have for your bread as your elements today? Take the bread in your hand. For what I received from the Lord, I also made known to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of his victory, let us eat together. In the same manner after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is my blood the blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We proclaim the death and the victory of Jesus Christ this morning. And in victory and with thanksgiving, let us drink together.
Well, we must worship. We must worship this morning. In light of all of this, in light of his victory, in light of sharing communion together, worship is our only response, as we always say on communion. So if you're watching with us at home, crank up the volume, belt out your worship to him, give him the thanksgiving that he deserves this morning as we worship him for who he is and as we give him thanks for what he has done.
Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Who the Son sets free. Oh, it's free indeed. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. Where your love poured out over me. And now my soul cries out, Hallelujah. Praise and honor on to would be open to see the ways in which the enemy may be sneaking in to our lives here and there, that we would have wide open eyes and discernment to understand that, Lord, and that you would show us where do we push back, how do we push back, what step do we take to push back, Lord, that we would be people of light and salt, and even in this unusual season that we're in, Father, there's opportunity everywhere to bring the kingdom of God forward. So open up our eyes, Lord, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, for where we can be light, we can be salt, we can be carriers of the aroma of Christ everywhere that we go, Lord, that we would be people of goodness, of righteousness, who shine your light in a dark world, not because we are great, Lord, but because you are great and because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Be with us as we head out into our week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, Meadowbrook. Go do some good this week. Find a way to let your light shine. We will see you online next Sunday. God bless you. Stay close to the Lord and have a wonderful week.